We are in Matthew chapter 27 this morning. We are looking at verses 51 through 56. The veil was torn from top to bottom, is what I've titled the message here. And let's uh, ask the Lord to bless our, our time together. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Minister to our hearts as we study together. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the theme of Matthew is Christ the King. And we, are, we have worked our way down to where we're at the end, uh, getting towards the end of chapter 27 in that whole section called The Passion of the Christ. Matthew 26 through 28 intimately deals with the events surrounding the death and uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I've shared this before, but it bears repeating. Uh, J. Vernon McGee uh, is, said this. There are 89 chapters in four Gospels. Four of these chapters cover the first 30 years of the life of Jesus and 85 chapters the last three years of his life. Of those 85 chapters, 27 deal with the last eight days of his life. So about one-third of the Gospel records deal with the last few days and place the emphasis on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What a tremendous emphasis. And that's where we are in our study we have seen the events leading up to the cross, the death of Christ on the cross, and now we see the effects, if you will, of the cross. And we saw last time in Matthew 27, verse 50, that Christ cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This loud voice involved the cry of triumph and the committal of his spirit to God the Father. It's recorded in John 19 like this. John 19, verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Note, Jesus did not say, I am finished, but rather, it is finished. Actually, it is finished is the translation of a single Greek word, the word tetelestai. The word simply meant it is accomplished or the debt is paid in full. Jesus, all by himself, paid our sin debt in full. To truly believe in him as Savior is to believe Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. Jesus alone is Savior. So all we can do is in faith say, thank you. Uh, Charles Spurgeon appropriately said, there is an inherent blasphemy in seeking to add to what Christ Jesus in his dying moments declared to be finished or to improve that in which the Lord Jehovah finds perfect satisfaction. Indeed, I say it is blasphemy to say it is not finished. I have to add my two cents. Well, at the moment of Christ's death, three amazing things immediately followed as seen in our study today as seen in Matthew 27, 51, and 52. Let's pick it up there, Matthew 27, verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Jesus gave a, gave a loud cry of victory and yielded up his spirit, and then immediately the veil of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. Now, the significance of this is incredible. The word temple here is the Greek word naos, which always refers to the innermost part of the temple known as the Holy of Holies, which was associated with God's most holy presence. Now, understand that no one was ever allowed to go into the Holy of Holies except for the high priest, and he could only go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement, which in Hebrew is literally Yom Kippur. Uh, Yom means day. Kippur means atonement. So the Jews still uh, celebrate uh, Yom Kippur, the, the Day of Atonement. And when the high priest went in, he could only go in with the blood of a sacrificial animal, which he quickly applied to the Ark of the Covenant for the sins of the people, and then he quickly got out. He didn't linger there. Now, the Jews knew that God had plainly said in the Old Testament that no one can see God and live. So the very thought 
of going into the intimate presence of God was overwhelming, even for the high priest. According to tradition, the high priest had a rope tied around his ankle or waist just in case he was struck down by God, which they thought would be an indication that God had rejected the offering and not forgiven the people. In that case, they'd be able to pull the high priest out from behind the veil. I mean, if he's struck down inside the Holy of Holies, who's going in after him? <laughs> Maybe we should tie a rope to him and pull him out just in case he, he, he doesn't come out. Well, so in the mind of every Jew, the Holy of Holies was the most sacred place on earth. No one would dare to try and go in there except for the high priest. And he only once a year, and then only with the proper blood offering, and then done quickly. The veil in front of the Holy of Holies was 60 feet wide, 30 feet high, and as thick as a man's hand, which would be about five inches. It was incredibly heavy, perhaps requiring several hundred men to lift it, uh, one old reference says that when it was wet, it required 300 men to lift it. Uh, they also say that a yoke of oxen could not have torn it apart. But note here, it was torn from top to bottom. This indicates it was a God thing. It was not a bottom-up, man-oriented thing, but rather a top-down thing. This was God's doing, and it was supernatural. Now, this put on display a couple of things. It put on display that it was on the basis of Christ's death on the cross that access is now available into the intimate presence of God through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. This was a brand new reality. It's a new covenant reality. This is what the book of Hebrews emphasizes. We read there in Hebrews chapter 10, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest. But by what means? Well, by the blood of Jesus. Having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, figuratively speaking, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Uh, again, figurative language of cleansing. And our bodies washed with pure water. Well, as believers, we now have access into the intimate presence of God through prayer. I mean, we come right into the, holy, the holiest presence of God and it's all because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We are invited in places such as Hebrews 4.16 to come and to come boldly. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can come boldly. We as God's children now have the privilege to come. And, and we are invited to come boldly, not, not arrogantly in and of ourselves, but boldly with great confidence because of the blood of Jesus and the fact that it has made way for us. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin and makes us perfectly right with God. So now we can come with great confidence and boldness right into the very throne room of God. As believers, we don't have to wonder whether we will be accepted. Well, I wonder if I'm getting through. No. Uh, we as God's children are now granted full access we don't need any other mediators. Jesus is our mediator. And through him, we now have full access. It's the great privilege that we have to come right into the throne room of God at any time. Now, the other thing to note that was communicated through this action is that the old system under the Mosaic law was now rendered obsolete, torn up. Under the old system, you understand that access was very limited. Everything was partial 
and limited. You see, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies only once a year. Even the other priests could never enter in. In the holy place just outside the Holy of Holies, only the priest could go. And then only at certain times with specific duties. They couldn't go there all the time. And then there was the court of the men, where only the men of Israel could go and not the women. And then there was the women's court, where no Gentile could ever go. And then there was the outer complex, which was the court of the Gentiles, where anyone could go. But you see, it was all very limiting, and there were all kinds of barriers. Let me uh, put this up on the overhead here, and I'm sure you're going to see this in the back row for sure. But, uh, you know, you, uh, you have this court of the Gentiles, you know, spacious area out here. Anyone could come here. It's intended to be a place of prayer for all people, as we see other places. But then uh, you have the court of the women. You're getting a little closer. Uh, the court of Israel, the men were allowed to come this far, but no further. Then you had the, the court of the priests. They could, they could go around here. But only a few of them with specific prescribed duties at certain times could go into the holy place. And then the most holy place, only the high priest, only once a year, only with a blood offering could go in there. But now, but now in Christ, all barriers have been removed. Under the new covenant, we now have direct, unhindered access into the holy of holies, into the holy presence of God. Now, one day I was in a friendly discussion, and it was friendly, with a man I had just met, as someone introduced us, and, and he was a Catholic man who happened to be married to a Protestant. But uh, the person who introduced me introduced me, he's pastor of Southview. And uh, it so happened he was a lawyer. And uh, as I was introduced to him, uh, since uh, I was introduced as a pastor, he started to make small talk about, you know, church. And uh, so I uh, proceeded to ask him what he thought the difference was between his Catholicism and, and my faith. And he said, well, quote, he said, the Catholic way is more direct. And I said, uh, no, that's not really true, I said. I said, you see, you have all these intermediate steps, such as the sacraments, the priest, Mary, confession, purgatory, and so forth. I said, my way is the direct way, which is straight through Jesus. I said, I have a direct line to heaven through Jesus. You know what he said? Nothing. He didn't know what to say, which is saying a lot for a lawyer. No offense to lawyers. We all need those good lawyers. And Christ is our ultimate uh, lawyer, our, our, uh, our defense. So anyway, but uh, note here in 1 Timothy, we studied this last Wednesday night, there's one God and one mediator. One mediator. One go-between. Between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And I shared this uh, Wednesday night as well. Note it most carefully that there is only one mediator between God and men, and that is Jesus Christ. The church is not the mediator. Angels are not the mediator. Saints are not the mediator. Mary is not the mediator. The pope or priests are not the mediator. Sacraments are not the mediator. Baptism is not the mediator. The only mediator by which we can have access to God, is Jesus. Any other gospel is a false gospel. Any other knowledge is not knowledge of the truth. Jesus died, the veil was torn from top to bottom, and that, my friends, changed everything. We now have direct access to God through Jesus and His finished work on the cross. It's finished! Top to bottom. Access is now available. It is finished. The old limiting system of barriers has now been removed and made completely, completely obsolete. I love this uh, picture. I'm not sure who did it. It's got a name here somewhere. 
I can't make it out. But anyway, uh, what a great way to picture this. It is finished. The veil is torn. That represents the old covenant. We now have a new and living way into the very presence of God through Jesus Christ. Uh, The old covenant is rendered obsolete. This is really a huge and essential point. You see, we always have those who come along and try to put us back under the law with its restrictions and regulations. Really, for such a person, it's mandatory that they memorize Colossians chapter 2. Probably won't take me up on that, but they should. Why would anyone want to do that? I mean, why would you want to go back to the barriers and the distance from God that's represented by being under the old covenant when you can have the intimacy and the closeness that we now have under the new covenant? Makes no sense. It's totally unbiblical. Hebrews chapter 8, by the way, this is what the book of Hebrews is largely about. Hebrews 8, 13 says, in that he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. We have a new covenant. The old has been set aside. It's obsolete. We today have a whole new way of relating to God, which is through Jesus Christ. We live under a whole new covenant which is based on the blood of Jesus. And it is an everlasting covenant. It's never going to be replaced. Hebrews 13, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work. Now realize that this tearing of the veil happened as soon as Jesus died, which was about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And realize that this happened right on Passover. At the very time, the Jews were killing their Paschal lambs. Now, ironically, Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. God's lamb who takes away the sin of the world. This was Passover. One of the busiest Jewish holidays of the year, if not the busiest. Josephus, a Jewish historian who lived about this time, said Jerusalem could swell to two million people during the Passover. That's a lot of people for a little city. You see, the temple would have been very crowded. The priests would have had all hands on deck at the temple. I mean, this is their busy time. It was in that context that this thick veil was torn from top to bottom. Now, something this heavy would undoubtedly have made a tremendous noise as it was split so that all in the surrounding area must have heard it. Can you imagine the hushed mayhem that must have ensued as the priests scurried about in the aftermath of this happening? Perhaps it was largely covered up because there was also an outside curtain in front of the holy place which would have prevented the general populace of the Jews from seeing it. But the priest uh, would have known about it in short order. And perhaps this partially explains what we find in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. We read there, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Many priests got saved! You know, the priests all knew something incredible had happened in relationship to the Holy of Holies, in relation to the timing of Christ's death. They had to have known this. Very possibly, this was instrumental in many of them being obedient to the faith. Well, what happened with the veil afterwards? We are not told. It's like, okay, we got this veil that's rent from top to bottom. What do we do with this? I'm sure they had an emergency session or two. <laughs> the Sadducees, what do we do now? <laughs> and the timing is quite interesting. Uh, John Phillips says, presumably they sewed it back up again and went about their business of serving a now dead religion as though nothing had happened. If so, it was not to be for long. Even as Matthew wrote, God was preparing to pull the entire temple complex down. 
Well, and simultaneously, with the veil being rent in the temple, was an earthquake, which caused the rocks to split open. You know, when God wants to make a point, he often uses an earthquake to show the awesomeness of what he is saying. He did this at Mount Sinai with the giving of the Ten Commandments. He did it at Jericho as the children of Israel entered the Promised Land. He did it at the death of Christ. We will see it again at the resurrection of Christ. He will do so in the future war of Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 38 and 39. And he will do so in grandiose fashion in the events related to the day of the Lord, climaxing in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Steve Austin, who was uh, with ICR, Institute for Creation Research, writes, Earthquakes have been used distinctively by God to highlight some of the most important events of the Bible. God does not do anything really big without emphasizing it with an earthquake. Generally, that's true. You go through and you study the big events. Maybe some exceptions, but generally that's true. You know, in this world, we talk about movers and shakers, right? We talk about movers and shakers. Well, I want you to know that God is the ultimate mover and shaker. And when he shaked things up, we better listen. He, took th- he shook things up at Christ's first coming, but it was really a mild shaking in grace. I mean... Christ did come in grace. It was like God was saying, you better listen. But he's going to shake the whole world violently at the second coming in the day of the Lord. We read in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust. From the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty, the lofty looks of man shall be humbled, the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. And you go down to verse 19, then they shall go into the holes of the rocks. I mean, they're going down. God's going to be exalted. The, humble, the, the arrogance of man is going down. And into the caves of the earth, from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty, when he arises to shake the earth mightily. At his first coming, it was sinners in the hands of a God of grace. As grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. At his second coming, it will be sinners in the hands of an angry God, as God is going to shake the world to its foundations and bring all that is haughty and lofty down. The earthquake at the time of Christ's death was, I think, just an attention-getter, saying, in effect, you better take note and listen to what I am saying through the death of my son. Verse 52, And the graves were opened. What's this? In conjunction with the earthquake the rocks and the rocks being split open, many graves or tombs were also split open. Now, in the Greek language, there's no punctuation marks, so there's some debate on the timing of the graves opening and the raising of the dead which followed. It would appear that immediately when Christ died, the veil was torn, the earth quaked, the rocks were split, resulting in various graves being opened. However, it is probable that the saints being raised did not happen until after the resurrection of Christ, as seen in verse 53. Note uh, verse 52b and 53. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after, after his resurrection. They went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, this is a very unique statement. A unique statement in Scripture without any parallel in any of the other Gospels. So what we have, we have here. That's it. And we're not told too much, leaving many unanswered questions. Now, these saints, literally holy ones, were obviously Old Testament saints who had died. I say they were obviously Old Testament saints because the church had not yet started. Now, they had been in the grave, and they were raised to life, apparently, after Christ rose from the dead. Now, some want to say, well, they, you know, they were, they were raised to life, but they stayed in the, in the tombs until after the resurrection of Christ, and then they emerged. Well, I, I don't think so. Uh, one of the biggest questions is whether these saints, uh, these holy people, were raised from the dead in mortal bodies, as in the case of Lazarus, 
meaning they had to die again, or whether they were resurrected with glorified bodies, like that of the risen Lord? It's a great question. I wish we had more information. Again, we're not given much, so we really don't know the specifics. And so there's different ideas. And, you know, when you're not really told, it's like people find the liberty to run with this or that. But we really don't know. If they did have glorified bodies, that would mean they definitely were raised from the dead after Christ was resurrected. Because the scripture plainly tells us that Christ himself is the first fruits of those risen from the dead in a glorified body. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 23. Acts 26, 23 says Christ would suffer and, quote, that he would be the first to rise from the dead. A very specific statement. Colossians 1, 18 and Revelation 1, 5 refer to Christ as the firstborn from the dead. If they did have resurrected glorified bodies, many assume that in short order they went back to heaven with Christ. Uh, some would see them as sort of a token of first fruit, fruits uh, following in the trail of Christ. A problem with this view is that these are Old Testament saints. And elsewhere we see the resurrection of the church saints first. And then the resurrection of the Old Testament saints at the time of Christ's second coming. However, if God wanted to resurrect a token first fruits, first fruits of Old Testament saints with glorified bodies out of order, as it were, uh, he certainly could do so. But I personally suspect that these Old Testament saints were probably raised to mortal life and had to die again, even as in the case of Lazarus and others that Christ raised from the dead. But again, we can't say for certain. It is clear uh, that they were Old Testament saints, meaning their souls had been in the paradise section of Sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew word. Uh, Hades is the Greek New Testament word. Uh, perhaps they were raised to indicate that in keeping with the rent veil, that all the previous barriers in place under the Old Covenant had now been removed, which they had long been waiting for. So, uh, you know, we talk about this uh, here was um, Sheol, Hades. There was two compartments. One was a place of paradise called Abraham's bosom. You read about this in Luke 16. Uh, there was also this uh, torment, place of torments, this section of torments. Again, Sheol in the Old Testament, Hades in the New Testament. Uh, we believe that these folks were taken to heaven at Christ's triumphal procession. Um, these are Old Testament believers. I believe this place was in the center of the earth, and we could have a long discussion about this. Uh, Old and New Testament unbelievers go here. People are still going here. They're still going to Hades, the torment section of Hades. Unbelievers throughout history will go there until the great white throne judgment, where they will be resurrected to appear before the great white throne, and then final sentence, and they will be cast into the lake of fire. Well, the Old Testament saints lived in anticipation of the coming of Christ. But they never really knew the full and total forgiveness that was actualized at the cross. You know, they were, they were kind of saved on credit. It's coming. <laughs> but it, it, we continue to sacrifice but because it, it's not quite here yet. They lived in the shadow land where nothing was yet complete. They lived in the era of barriers where, yes, they had relationship with God, and yet nothing was made perfect under the law. Hebrews 7, 19. They never were able to get very close to God. They never had absolute confirmation. Uh, there were always more sacrifices to be made, and things always remained incomplete. Into that void stepped Jesus to become the sacrifice for the sins of the entire world, including all those committed prior to the cross. Thus, Christ's death became the redemption of all those transgressions under the first covenant for all true believers. That is, all those sins that were committed under the Mosaic Covenant. So Christ retroactively paid the final and complete price for all the sins of the Old Testament saints and removed the previous barriers 
to where these Old Testament saints now also have full access to God. Perhaps that is the point being made in conjunction with the veil being torn from top to bottom. All the barriers of the Old Testament are now removed. You want some evidence of it? Resurrection of these Old Testament saints. In his death, Christ now provided for the Old Testament saints to also have unhindered access to God. And to add weight to this train of thought, Hebrews 12, 23 speaks of the spirit of just men made perfect, who are now represented as being in heaven. It is thought that the spirits of the just men made perfect refers to the Old Testament saints, who prior to the time of Christ lived under the barriers of the Old Covenant. I mean, they went to the paradise section of Sheol, Hades. They didn't go into the intimate presence of the Lord like, now, like happens now when a saint dies. So they lived under the barriers of the Old Covenant. But at the time of Christ's death and resurrection, they were put into a better position. That of being made perfect into the completed position of now having full access to God. The time of Christ's resurrection, we believe that they were then transitioned from the paradise section of Hades to heaven where we now find them. Well, these who came out of the graves were evidently contemporaries with those they appeared to in the holy city of Jerusalem. Because the appearance of a complete stranger, and again, I, I, you know, I don't want to be dogmatic about any of these details because we're not given a lot of detail, but... It, you know, it would seem like the appearance of a complete stranger would not mean much, right? I'll get the door, honey. Hello, you don't know me, but uh, I just came out of the tomb east of town here. <laughs> Shut the door. <laughs> honey, there's a crazy person at the door. Uh, more likely, the sense is that in appearing to many people, the people who saw them had previously known them, which would result in instant credibility in terms of being raised from the dead. I mean, you have a person you've never met before, and you talk to, I don't know how long they're going to talk to you out here. How long is it going to take to convince you that uh, they were in the grave? I mean, I'm never going to believe that. How about you? Unless, of course, they're in a glorified body. Then I might become a believer. But anyway, uh, I think it, they were not. Well, it is suggested also that in their appearing to many in Jerusalem, that the resurrected state promises deeper fellowship, not only with God, but also with other human beings. You do wonder what those interactions look like, right? I mean, it, I mean it's not every day that you have someone out of the tomb show up at your door. I mean, what would you say? I mean, it's somebody you, you know. Uh, I would think it would have the potential for hysteria. Right? <laughs> what? Have you ever seen the prank that they pull on people where they have this person in a casket sit up? Uh, I mean, it shocks people out of their minds. Uh, this was a most interesting event, to say the least. Verse 54. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, the centurion was a Roman guard who had command over a hundred men. Now, he had those with him. Uh, he and those with him were in the role of supervising the crucifixions to ensure that the death penalty be carried out just as ordered. You know, Roman soldiers were known for their strong discipline, for their great courage. They were not known for their fear. Now, they had undoubtedly witnessed many gory crucifixion scenes. You don't rise to the top, especially as a centurion, without probably having quite a bit of experience. But this crucifixion of this specific person was different. They had a firsthand, up-close, and personal experience at the foot of the cross. I mean, they witnessed everything that was happening. They probably knew of the Jews' demand of Pilate that Jesus be killed because he had made himself the Son of God, John 19, 7. They had heard from the rabble crowd blaspheming, 
who were saying, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. They had heard the religious leaders sneering about how he had said, I am the Son of God. They had perhaps even themselves nailed the placard over Christ's cross, which said, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. They had witnessed the profound seven words of Christ from the cross and the demeanor by which he had spoken them. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. To the thief, the repentant thief, today you will be with me in paradise. To his mother, woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. They had heard it all. They had seen it all. They witnessed the darkness that settled over the whole land at midday noon until 3 p.m. And suddenly, I assume, it became light again after Christ yielded up his spirit. They had witnessed the loud victory shout of Christ as he yielded up his spirit. And they had observed that immediately the earth began to quake and the rocks all around were splitting open. This not only got their attention, it caused them to fear greatly. These strong, courageous soldiers were terrified. They could see this is not normal activity and it's all surrounding the death of this one on the middle cross. Obviously, this is the activity of the divine, and it terrified them. And in that moment, the centurion cried out, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, Mark 15, 39 is clear that it was the centurion himself who actually said this. But apparently, the soldiers who were with him also affirmed it. Now, commentators grapple over whether or not this was a true saving faith confession on the part of the centurion or just an emotional response expressed through the lens of pagan mysticism. Now, in my view, there is no reason to think this was not a true saving faith response. Not only did the remarkable physical phenomenon get his attention, sort of like that with the Philippian jailer, when the jail was shaken to its core by a great earthquake, and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas saying, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You know, earthquakes have a, a way of getting a person's attention big time, especially in a context like this. Now, I've never been in a major, major earthquake. We've had a few tre uh, tremors here at different places, and I've felt that a time or two uh, in, you know, I don't know, the last however many years. But uh, <clears throat> I knew of a friend whose daughter was out in California. They had a, a major earthquake, and she said, I'm leaving this place, and I'm never coming back. Uh, you know, when you see the water in the swimming pool going shoo, 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 back and forth, it's enough to get your attention, right? Not only that, there was this, uh, not only was this, uh, there this uh, remarkable natural phenomenon, there was also the testimony of who Jesus is coming from all sorts of unlikely sources. It was enough for the converted thief on the cross to come to faith, why not these Roman soldiers? Note also that Luke further qualifies the nature of the centurion's confession in this way. We read in Luke 23, 47, So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. This was not just a pagan awe for the awesomeness of the circumstances. No, this was... Sincerely giving God the glory. The New American Standard translates this. He began praising God. Amazingly, this Roman centurion in the death of Christ affirmed the very thing, the very thing that so enraged the Jewish religious leaders. When Caiaphas, the high priest, had put Jesus under oath, he demanded that Jesus say whether or not he was the Christ the Son of God. And Jesus responded by saying, You got it, my paraphrase. It is as you said. The high priest then tore his clothes, accusing him of blasphemy, and the whole group said, quote, He is deserving of death. 
Jesus being the Son of God was an essential issue throughout his ministry. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples who people thought that he was, and they named off various prophets. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, really under inspiration, said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus then said, I'm going to build my church on this rock truth. So the key issue of who Jesus is as the Son of God is fundamental to the faith. John wrote the entire Gospel of John so we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and thereby have life. To believe in Jesus as the Son of God is to believe in Him as God, one who is of the very nature and essence of God. This is certainly how the Jews understood it. We read in John chapter 5, verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. That's why they wanted to, to kill him. He said, I'm the Son of God. He made himself equal with God, and saying that God was his Father, and saying that he was the Son of God. Well, God saves pagans. And he also saves religious people like Paul, who said he was the chief of all sinners. And a true saving faith starts with recognizing Jesus for who he is as Lord God. Undoubtedly, this Roman centurion spoke more than he knew. Uh, obviously, his, <laughs> it was very elementary, his faith at this point. But uh, very probably, this was the stuff of saving faith. We would like to know more about where his story went from here, but we don't, even though tradition, early tradition says he was a true believer. And we don't want to forget about the place of the Holy Spirit's ministry in all of this. Paul said that no one can say that Jesus is Lord, and truly mean it, except by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. My take is that this centurion was sincere and that God was at work in his life to bring him to a true confession of faith. And in this, we have Christ's prayer on the cross being answered. Remember what Christ prayed? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. This was the Roman soldiers who were doing this. This prayer, uh, very specifically, it was directed in reference to them. And I think was answered. John MacArthur says, The faith of the soldiers is of great significance and was especially so in the early church. Their testimony was, as it were, Jesus' own final testimony from the cross. Although given after he died, that testimony dramatically proclaimed that his grace extends to every sinner, even to those who put him to death. Verse 55. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering uh, to him, were looking on from afar. So they'd come all the way down from Galilee, all the way up north, where the majority of Christ's ministry took place. Now, we live in crazy last days, perilous times, in which people in all-out rebellion against uh, nearly all things God uh, want to defy all things God, even to the very point of uh, you know, denying uh, their sex, right? Uh, they, they want to defy the nature of God and the God of nature, by claiming to be able to change their sex, which is truly absurd and delusional. Now, we ought to call it what it is. God created two sexes. This just in. Uh, male and female, he created them. Look it up. It's, it's right there in Genesis 1.27, the very first chapter in the Bible. I mean, you don't have to look far. Maybe just read the first chapter. It'll, it'll help you. And God created male and female to complement one another. You know, we're, we're different. We're not exactly the same. And we need each other. And both in the plan of God have a beautiful part to play. Women tend to be more nurturers than men. And we see this in Jesus' ministry. I mean, they had a, a ministering ministry to Jesus. Yeah, they weren't apostles, but they were behind the scenes doing their thing. 
there were this band of women that followed him and ministered to him. Now, who do you suppose did the cooking? I'm pretty sure that generally it wasn't the rugged band of fishermen. I don't know that for sure, but just knowing a little bit about life, probably not. Luke chapter 8, certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others, many others who provided for him from their substance. Now, amazingly, none of the disciples who were so adamant about willing to die for Jesus are found at the cross, with the exception of John. The disciples are last mentioned in 2656 when they fled and do not reappear again until after the resurrection in 2816. But these women were at the cross. They were last at the cross and first to the tomb on Resurrection Sunday. There's something precious in the sight of the Lord about ministering, nurturing, love, and devotion. John MacArthur says, Sympathetic loyalty is one of the most beautiful and distinguishing characteristics of godly women, generally being more evident in them than in godly men. A spiritual woman has the capacity for incredible loyalty in the face of ridicule and danger. Adam Clark said, To their everlasting honor, these women evidence more courage and affectionate attachment to their Lord and Master than the disciples did who had promised to die with him rather than forsake him. It says many women were there. But we don't know how many. But Matthew names these three in particular. Verse 56, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now first mentioned is Mary Magdalene, who had been delivered from seven demons. Her love for Jesus ever after was a standout example of devotion. Mary, the mother of James and Joses. Uh, the James in view here is thought to be uh, one of the apostles, uh, commonly referred to James the Less, or as James, the son of Alphaeus. Uh, this second Mary was also at the tomb on resurrection morning, the third woman is said to be the mother of Zebedee's sons, who happened to be James and John, whom Jesus referred to as the sons of thunder. I mean, these guys could make some noise, I take it. Now, they too were apostles. Their mother elsewhere is called Salome, who I one time early in my ministry mis mispronounced as Salami. But at one point, uh, she asked Jesus to favor her sons by having one sit on his right hand and the other on his left in the kingdom. Now, she was just doing what mothers do, right? Looking out for her boys. You know, these sons of thunder, they need a little looking after. She was actually a sister to Jesus' mother, Mary, making her an aunt of Jesus and making James and John the cousins of Jesus. Well, from Matthew 19, 26, we learn that Jesus' mother, Mary, was also present at the cross. And, of course, there were many others there, uh, as noted in the previous verse. Well, let's wrap this up, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. Our text today brings out two great truths of the faith about Jesus that must be embraced in saving faith. That being that Jesus is Savior, as signified in the veil that was torn from top to bottom, and also in Him being the Son of God, as confessed by the centurion. This is what we must believe and personally appropriate in saving faith, that Jesus is the Savior, and that He is Lord God. And it must be personal. Thomas, upon seeing the risen Lord, said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, you have believed. We must personally appropriate the truth of who Jesus is as Savior and Lord. Jesus as Savior and Lord is the great emphasis even at the foot of the cross, as seen in our text today. First John, John wrote the Gospel of John, but he also wrote First John, and he wrote there in First John 4, 
And we have seen and testified that the Father sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. You see that dual emphasis? Savior, Son of God. All the way through we find this dual emphasis. It's going to be a major emphasis in our study this week in the right kind of faith, which emphasizes the person of Christ and the finished work of Christ. A saving faith believes on Jesus as Savior and Lord. And the evidence that it is real is that we are willing to confess it. Let's not overlook that. Now, anyone can say words. Many on Judgment Day will say, Lord, Lord, but it was not real. And Jesus will expose them as phony, saying, I never knew you. Depart from me. True faith is real in the heart. And if it's real in the heart, it confesses with the mouth. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then he gives the order, the proper order in verse 10. For with the heart one believes under righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So who is Jesus to you? What say you? The centurion openly confessed, Truly, this was the Son of God, and he began to praise God. Jesus said, Whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Well, if you'd like to confess Christ today, we elders will be up front after the service to hear your confession. You know, you say, well, I secretly believe in my heart, but I've never told anybody. I wonder how much you really believe it. Uh, True, and we're saved by believing, by believing alone. But if we really believe it, the expectation of Scripture is that we are willing to confess it. We are available to help you in any way that we can. We'd love to pray with you and encourage you and help you uh, from the Scriptures in any way that we can. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close this in prayer.